good day and welcome to episode 11 of the Coriolis Effect. Don't let the pretty face fool you. I'm a beast. My name's Dave. And I'm Matthew. And today we've got uh, an episode that we're squeezing out before, <laughs> first of all, Dave, and then I go on holiday. Squeezing out sounds uh, really so disgusting. So we wanted to get this one out, and not just before we go on holiday, but also before um, uh, the Forbidden Lands Kickstarter finishes. But we'll talk a little bit more about that in a moment, because as usual, we'd like to tell you what's going on. And first of all, we are going to talk about, among other things, the Forbidden Lands Kickstarter yep. in the world of gaming. Uh, then you've got a really interesting little uh, essay you've written on the Nazarene sacrifice, which I'm very keen to hear about, Dave. Um, and then we've got another Players in the Hammam with Tony joining us again, talking about all sorts of things, quite a wide ranging discussion. But starting off with your Tango Tango 82 um, game, Dave. Yeah, a little a little reprise on a player perspective on how that went and um, thoughts for the future, maybe. Yeah, for the future indeed. And um, then I've got a new talent of the episode uh, that our other player, uh, Andy, was really keen for me to invent. So uh, I've done that. He really likes it. Yeah, I'm looking um, forward to hearing that. you've got that. a bit of a catch up. Sorry? Yeah, I'm looking forward to hearing all about that uh, talent of the week. Uh, and then you've got an upset, uh, uh, an, sorry, an update, <laughs> I should say, or perhaps it was an upset. Who can tell? On the on on the crew of the Spectral Corsair, we do. and we're finishing off this episode with some very special news. So do stay listening right to the end. <laughs> right, but um, well, shall we start off with uh, Forbidden Lands in the world of gaming? Yeah, so uh, as we're recording, there are still three days to go of for the Forbidden Lands Kickstarter. I can, I imagine, and I hope that all our listeners have already kicked in. But if you haven't, this this episode should be hitting the internet with at least twenty four hours to go. So get on the internet, get to Kickstarter, and bid whatever you can for Forbidden Lands. Well, there's no pressure on you now, though, is there, Matt? Because you're editing this one, so that gives you 36 hours to get it done and get it out there. And I'll do that. I'll do that. <laughs> I've, I've got the incentive to do that. Excellent. And it's been a really successful campaign for Free Elegan, uh, with There's just one more stretch goal to get, which I think would be quite a fun one. It's the it's legend and character generator. Um, one aspect of which I, I believe will start... Uh, give you an opportunity to randomise your history. And as an old Traveller fan, I quite like the idea of uh, seeing what my character might have got up to in the past. I like that. It's one of the things I did like about, really like about Traveller, is it giving you, as part of your character generation, such a uh, sort of rich background that you then, you receive your character at the end of that. And I I really like that because it, sometimes making up your whole background yourself which is great, but actually sometimes it's nice to take control of the character part of the way through their life. Yeah. I mean, I, I you know, I, I like both ways of doing it. Sometimes I don't want, you know, the dice to dictate the, the, the background of my character. I've got a very firm idea in my head of yeah. what my character might have done. Sometimes I want to discover what my character uh, did in the past through play round the table now. I like to have a really thin sketch of a character to begin with and, and explore who that person is as we go through play, but sometimes I just love rolling up a traveller character and then 
dealing in play with whatever that's left me. Yeah, absolutely. The last time I was playing, I had a, a crippled um, Vargir, uh, Wolfman, and uh, he was great. I really loved playing him, even though he was no good in a fight. I think sometimes there's a lot of fun in role-playing around the things that you don't like very much about your character, about his background. That yeah. you know, There are things in everyone's life you don't like very much. It hasn't all worked out exactly how you wanted it to. And sometimes just being given that challenge is a really good part of role-playing rather than just deciding exactly what those challenges are because you like the idea of those challenges. So yeah. You are so right. That That's why you're the best player, Dave. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, one, of the, <clears throat> one of the stretch goals that we have already hit is uh, something that I'm very excited about and very proud of because it was my idea. <laughs> and that is... That was my idea, that is. So, it was indeed. That no, wasn't my idea. And it's, but... the, it, it's the open game license that Fiala Gan have done, which will sort of, uh, we, we wait to see exactly what it will entail, but it uh, offers out into the community the what's becoming called the uh, Year Zero engine. I wonder I wonder who said that first. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Year the Zero engine out for, for people to publish... Uh, content for uh, apparently all the games that Free Legan release, and maybe you know, uh, interestingly, some games that that might be based on that engine, but with entirely new content. Like I'm thinking, Tango Tango eighty two. Absolutely, yeah. I, I this open game license is absolutely perfect for me because it's it's exactly the kind of thing I want to be I want to be doing. But also, I think it works really well for both of us because we can then. Uh, more easily put out all the stuff that we're talking about maybe work it up in a bit more detail and stick it out there for the rest of the community to to play with uh in a way that perhaps we wouldn't have been able to you know in a more professional way rather than just doing it in an amateur way that we're doing at the moment yeah yeah i we, we, i'm quite excited about what that might open up absolutely um uh, just in, in another aspect of uh, gaming news, I think uh, the challenge to Forbidden Lands sweeping the floor with Kickstarter has been that just a few days after uh, the Kickstarter opened, uh, another Kickstarter opened for, if you like, a far bigger, more popular um, game, and that's Numenera, the second edition of Numenera, yes. where they appear to have quickly looked at what um, Forbidden Lands was doing and th- thought, oh, we need to do that too. So <laughs> the second edition of Numenera, which uh, I don't know, Dave, whether you've um, ever seen it or played it, but it's kind of set in the far, far future in the last days of Earth. Uh, nine whole versions of humanity have risen uh, to, to prominence and and been destroyed by various disasters. So now I'm familiar. Looking millennia away. Yeah, I'm familiar yeah, with it, it, but I've never actually played it myself. Yeah, so, it was. You know, it's quite an exciting game of exploration and discovering the artifacts, strange artifacts that previous civilizations have left. Um, but well, I had a problem with it at the time. It was one of the first Kickstarters I considered investing in, and in the end, I didn't. Partly because when I got down to it, it's a D20 engine. <laughs> and I'm not a big fan of that. Um, 
but this time round, they've they've got a sort of a second game, which is less about exploration and more about building your stronghold. Which I thought they must have got that idea off real again and quickly added that in. Mm, perhaps it's difficult to tell, isn't it? Um, no, I, I, obviously they didn't. If, if, if the Kickstarter started so close. I'm pretty sure they had that idea beforehand. Yeah, but uh, yeah, I wish them, I wish them all the luck in the world. But I'm hoping they're not taking any of Free Elegans Kickstarter money away from them. Uh, so yeah. if you're going to go for both, by all means, go for both. But make sure you support Forbidden Lands first. <laughs> yeah, well, it's interesting what you say about D20 games because. Uh, I've been playing uh, a bit of Dungeons and Dragons down the pub again for the first time in about phew, 25 or 30 years. And I'm really enjoying it. But again, I'm I'm not entirely convinced that I really enjoy the D20 mechanic in the way that I like the Year Zero engine. But also, yeah, I've just started with our group, uh, with you, know, you Tony, and, and Andy when he turns up for a game. Um, Simba Room, which is another fantasy setting with... Uh, a d20 dice mechanic with a lot of very similar feel to Dungeons and Dragons but a bit simpler and a bit less rules heavy and we played our first game of that yesterday we recorded it if it's good enough we might stick it out as an actual play just to see if people are interested but it is swedish after all even if it's not a year zero yeah, engine game yeah it's a yen ring so I, I i think we can cover it it's a it's a yen ringen game and it's excellent i love it and we've talked about it before on this podcast but i I, I don't want your sort of dislike of the D20 system to adversely impact your enjoyment of that particular campaign. Having just started it, um, you know, it, it's something that that it, it gives a slightly different flavour to it. It doesn't stop me enjoying D&D when I play it, but I do prefer the handful of dice mechanic uh, mechanic that you get in uh, you know in Coriolis and, and Mutant Year Zero. Or other games uh, like yeah, Legend yeah. of the Five Rings. I, I've been playing um, Dungeons and Dragons a bit more recently, and again, like you, after a break of about twenty-five years. And I, you know, I think it's you know, for me, it's a, a totally irrational prejudice I have against D twenty. Yes, it's a it's a linear system, but I quite enjoy percentile games, and they're just as linear. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe it doesn't quite have the nuancing of a percentile game. There's, you know, everything happens in units of, if you like, 5% with a D20. But something about it, you know, sometimes when when you when you fail a role in a D20 game like Simba Room, I sense a real sense of disappointment um, yeah. that I don't sense when I've thrown a whole bunch of dice. And I, I think that's really interesting because, you know, we discussed earlier on uh, when, when Coriolis first came out and people were experiencing it, a lot of people had a problem with the dice pool system because they were throwing a lot of dice and not getting many successes. No. That doesn't bother me at all. But when I, when I roll in Simba Room, it, rolling high is a miss rather than rolling low. But you know, when, when I roll above the, the target number and therefore um, miss my hit or whatever, then I'm gutted on a D20 in a way that I'm not in most other games. I, do. I think it's just something I have to get over with. Yeah, yeah, I, I do wonder whether, um, <laughs> you know, to, to, to be a bit frivolous here, uh, you know, we roll so badly 90% of the time in Coriolis, we expect to fail anyway. So actually, rolling, yeah. a, rolling a bad set of dice doesn't, doesn't make any difference. Um, but, the, um, but the other point, I think it is such a, as we talked about ages ago, it's such a binary on or off thing with uh, a D20. And my... My dice rolling in the D&D game with the D20s that I had from 30 years ago was so bad, I went out and bought myself 
about six different UD20s, a couple of really nice metal heavy ones, and they're just as shit as the other ones were anyway. So um, it uh, it does have a... It doesn't help. It doesn't help. No, I agree. But I... And I just thought there's a bit of gaming news, actually, which we didn't discuss, but I just thought I'd add that in since, since you mentioned it. Uh, you know, there's dice pool in... in in L5R, mm. there are some new beta rules yes. for the new edition of L5R out. We'll comment on that in a future episode, because I don't think either of us or any of us have had a chance to read it yet, but we will come back to that one. Now, I think the one thing I would say was, I'm really pleased that um, is it what, Fantasy Flight, isn't it, doing it? I've actually cho- yeah. chosen to, to continue the L5R game going forward. I hope they haven't badly damaged it or changed it too much because the game as it stands the fourth edition is absolutely brilliant i think but uh, the, the very fact that it isn't just dying and disappearing into the mists of history is yeah, is a really good thing uh, i think so i'm very yeah, pleased i think that's that. a good thing i i've had a quick glance through the rules um there's a lot of things i like about it they've got a, a form of roll and keep not quite the same form of roll and keep that we're used to from the fourth edition um but uh, yeah, we'll talk about that some more maybe yeah. in the next episode. Yeah, that sounds good. Let's get into things Coriolis now, let's, though, shall we? Yep, yeah, let's do that. And I um I've been doing a lot of thinking about the Nazarene sacrifice, uh, largely because Yafet was tinkering with that. Um, and I've had um, uh, you know, I've had a few more thoughts about it. So, uh, did you want to hear those now, Matthew? Yeah, I'd love to. Tell me. Let's do that. Yafet was sure. This bullet had his name on it. It was bang on the bullseye. He was about to die. He closed his eyes for the last time, his life flashing through his mind. It was a troubled picture, and it was short. Icons, damn it, it was so... unfinished. But the pain didn't come. Yafet heard the wish of a bullet pass by his ear heard the zing of a ricochet off the ornate brass lamp hanging from the wall behind him, heard it crash to the floor and the quiet whoomp of a fire bursting freely into life. In the fraction of a moment that followed, Yafet felt something around him, with him, protecting him. He couldn't see it, but he felt it, felt the hand of the beast saving him for better things. He fell to the ground, his eyes tight shut but mind and soul more open than ever before. It was all so clear now. The book his old friend, Manon, from all those years on Karmaruk, had given him, now made complete sense. Yafet had liked the tales, the proverbs, the teachings Manon had tried so hard to pass on, in whispered voices and darkened chambers. But he hadn't really got it, hadn't really understood the sacrifices made, the selfless destiny of Nazarene, the things the dancer demanded in his form of the beast the things the beast promised to the faithful. But now he did. Lying prone on the floor of that Coriolis spice bazaar, Yafet opened his eyes on a world that was new in almost every respect. And the beast had made his point clear. Yafet understood, and knew he had to do something about it. The end of the last scenario in the Mukafar campaign saw Yafet survive a roll of 66 on the critical hit table thanks to his dancer's talent and the intervention of the beast. I had been thinking a little bit about the Nazarene sacrifice, as Yafet had been tinkering with that theology. But now he's totally committed to it, I had to take the time to really look at what the book said. 
and what this might mean for the objectives and hopes of Nazarene sacrifice, and what influence this would have on Yafet. Nazarene sacrifice was a first-come faction that worshipped the dancer, but in that icon's alternate aspect of the beast. Many believe that the beast represents mankind's deepest, truest nature, of inherent evil and power through strength, and the extreme idea that to achieve perfect beauty you must be free of any morality. Absolute nihilism, reflecting the accepted perception of the First Horizon at the time of the Portal Wars, was a given. Rumours abounded that Nazarene sacrifice practised human sacrifice, performed dark rituals and made unholy alliances with evil spirits. If the rival factions in the Third Horizon needed any more reason to hate Nazarene sacrifice, these rumours gave them ample ammunition. This all sounds fine, I suppose, but so far so psycho. For me, it conjures images of psychotic bio-sculpting experiments and utter brutality. Something out of the Saw movies, perhaps. Chaotic evil in its truest sense. I've played a psychopathic character before, and while the freedom this offers is fun, ultimately it makes for a pretty shallow role-playing experience. I wasn't too upset when Stonewall Jackson died at his own hand, critically failing to lay some explosives, and I certainly didn't want to go down that route with Yafet. His faith in the beast is a more complex and nuanced creature. So what might this search for perfect beauty actually mean? And what might it involve? Are we talking about Nishka in Firefly, and his adherence to the teachings of Shan Yu? Live with a man forty years, share his house, his meals, speak on every subject, then tie him up and hold him over the volcano's edge, and on that day you will finally meet the man. This idea works brilliantly in Firefly, but I don't see Yafet as a young Nishka, torturing people willy-nilly for some pseudo-scientific purpose, but in fact just for the psychotic fun of it. Maybe the most extreme accusations, human sacrifices and the like, are just that, made-up stories to turn the people against the faction. But who knows what Nazarene sacrifice really got up to in hidden cloisters and behind closed doors. But Yafet doesn't subscribe to these extremes. To his mind, his objective here is really scientific, rather than pseudo-scientific. But he is obedient to the beast, so while he won't go out of his way to find harmful methods to further his studies, he won't shirk from them either when the science and the theology tell him it's necessary. But back to Nazarene's sacrifice. The faction's adherents believe this nihilistic and brutal search for perfect beauty will open the doors to unfathomable power, so perhaps it's little wonder they would try to seek out this knowledge. They were one of the few factions at the time of the Portal Wars who truly understood the portals, at least as well as the Foundation, or the Order of the Pariah. Perhaps there was much envy and fear in the Third Horizon about the knowledge and power of Nazarene's sacrifice, based purely on political reasons. And perhaps the Portal Wars simply gave the Order of the Pariah and their fair-weather allies the pretext to destroy a faction that might rival their dominance. I love the idea of the powerful factions concocting a bogeyman myth to demonise a rival and justify military action to remove that rival. 
The fact that the behaviour of Nazarene's sacrifice gave the Order of the Pariah plenty to work with is neither here nor there. But I'm not trying to say that the Third Horizon isn't a better and happier place without Nazarene's sacrifice. But perhaps their enemies saw a golden opportunity and took it. But whatever the reason, whether it was the righteous cleansing of a beastly organisation, or a political quickstep to eliminate an economic, military and theological rival, or perhaps a mixture of the two, Nazarene's sacrifice was ruthlessly destroyed during the war. They were portrayed as the lackeys of the First Horizon, and thus were surely seen as traitors to the Third Horizon. Certainly, it doesn't seem that many in the Third Horizon mourned their passing. The Order of the Pariah led a loose coalition of other factions, including the Draconites, and perhaps most tellingly the Legion, and hunted down the devotees of the beast. The decisive battles were fought in Odicon, where Nazarene's sacrifice was finally defeated and scattered to the far reaches of space. The portals to the First Horizon were closed, sealing them off for good, and bringing victory to the Third Horizon. But the faction hasn't passed entirely into the history books. It lives on, in hiding, in valleys and woods, dark city streets and behind the veil of respectable business and communities. It may not be strong, and it may be scattered far and wide, but the worship of the beast survives, and one day Nazarene's sacrifice will rise again and take its revenge. So what does all this mean for Yafet and his relationship with the beast? The book says that the dancer is seen with a sweeping shawl and welcomes sacrifices of an exquisite meal, a dance, or a song. The book also tells us that the beast is represented by a dragon-like creature with fur and nine eyes. I've said before that Yafet's dance to the beast is akin to the hacker, an aggressive war dance that challenges our enemies. This feels right to me, although there would be some terrible ironic black humour in an elegant or gentle dance form to worship such an icon. I also see the beast as humanoid, with the reptilian features of a dragon, terrible claws and an array of black eyes, large and small, not dissimilar to those of a spider. The beast cloaks his form in an exotic animal skin kaftan and dupatta, instead of a sweeping shawl. So what does Yafet's devotion to the beast tell him, or inspire him to do? Well, the idea of revenge against the enemies of Nazarene's sacrifice must be right up there. And surely, Yafet needs little prompting to nurse a grudge against the order of the pariah. They did take him as a slave. They did oppress him. They did order his death. But it's not just the Zalusians who are ripe for the beast's vengeance. Not only are the Draculites and the Legion legitimate targets, but also the Black Lotus assassins from Alarm's Temple were tireless in their pursuit of the Nazarene sacrifice's leaders, and there's a special place in the beast's hell for them. But Yafet is an engineer with an insatiable curiosity to see how things work. He won't go out of his way to cause needless harm in doing so, unless that's harm to the beast's enemies, perhaps. But considerations of morality, fairness and justice won't bear on his conscience if the ends justify the means. His time awake in portal space gave him an insight into that dimension, and now he must learn more about it. He must learn enough about the portals to find and reopen those gates to the first horizon. Then, and only then, can the wrongs of the portal wars be put right. Well, 
Dave, when you said you were going to write about Nazarene sacrifice, I thought, oh, God, because I know where Yafet's going and <laughs> I've got in my head a really clear idea of what I think the Nazarene sacrifice are about. And I thought, oh, God, if you do something radically different, then what am I going to do as a GM? I like my Nazarene sacrifice. I might not like yours. <laughs> but actually... Uh, yeah, you know, you've you've done that thing that I I love about Coriolis, where the, there are two different sides to everything. Yep. Uh, so that's good. You're writing in the Coriolis style, um, and yeah, I can fit this Nazarene sacrifice, I think, very well into our campaign. I particularly like to see Shan Yu being quoted there, um, <laughs> as you know. Uh, we're both big Firefly fans, and this is Firefly crossed with uh, Arabian Nights, so I was. Uh, very pleased to see that. I was partly um, I was partly quoting Shan Yu to say that that's not how I'm gonna want Yafet to play it. But uh, yeah, that's okay. But you got the quote in there. Yeah. Well, I, 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 yeah, that is a quote that's just been begging to go into one of our podcasts. So I, you know, the opportunity was just too good this time. Uh, no, that's good to see. Um, I guess the the interesting thing, uh, and I probably won't commit to this. Well, we'll, we'll see how it goes, but. Um, I'm interested in the uh, prequel scenario that we're hearing is going to come out uh, hopefully before Christmas from the guys at Freer Lagan, which is the last voyage of, oh, I can't remember the name of the ship. Uh, And that, I believe, is going to tell us a little bit more about uh, the incident on... um, Tawan. Tawan, yeah. And I wonder whether that will bring up another version of the Nazarene sacrifice. Uh, yeah, it's quite possible, isn't it? I think it was um, it was interesting having spent some time to dig into the books and really just pull out all the Nazarene sacrifice content that was in there. I hadn't quite understood before how um allied to the first horizon the Nazarene sacrifice were. And actually yeah. that they were the interlopers in the third horizon who were then trying to support the first horizons agenda and that was yeah. that was really interesting and again the fact that the the order of the pariah and the legion ganged up together to destroy them along with the draconites was also again another real good indication of the the way we talked about it before the you know my enemy's enemy is my friend kind of attitude that the order of the pariah have yeah but well, it's interesting because that bit I I had picked up on that first horizon thing, and that was very much where I thought my version of the Nazarene sacrifice might go mm. in, in our campaign. So I, you know, I I was kind of worried that you you might not acknowledge that in in what your vision of the sacrifice was going to be. Yeah. But you had, so that's cool. Um, <laughs> no, because I think there's so, a, I think the, the the risk that I came up with something here that was marketed different from your view of what you want your campaign to Nazarene sacrifice to actually be like, um, wouldn't have actually mattered because I was doing this, you know, as, as you, you know, having listened to it, you can see I'm, I'm interweaving it with Yafet. So I'm doing it very much from Yafet's perspective point of view. And actually yeah. what he believes about the Nazarene sacrifice might be totally wrong because he doesn't, just because he's now following it doesn't mean he knows all the ins and outs of what the faction is like and what's left of it. He's just going on hearsay and what he's read in his little book. So actually, he doesn't know yes. what it's like. So my view of it could be totally different to yours, but actually the reality for for Yaffa in the campaign is very different, and that might be an interesting thing to play, actually, 
where he thinks it's one yeah, thing, it could, but actually it could it's something fall somewhere between the two. Completely, yeah. I think the other thing that and I, you know what, what what I did like about that is you know the way you you or Yafet were suggesting that maybe the Nazarene sacrifice were just a scapegoat for the other factions in their in their building of political power bases because we see that happen, don't we? <laughs> yeah. In modern day politics. Yeah, exactly. Scapegoated. Yeah, and this very much struck me as. Uh, you know, there are there were countless parallels in modern political and military history about uh, you know a country or a faction or an ethnic group being uh, vilified by another group in order to justify them going and kicking the shit out of them. Um, and I think that kind of fits quite well in here. The other thing that I thought was really interesting was the recognition in the book that the Nazarene sacrifice were at least as well learned about portal space. Uh, algorithms and the use of portal space than anybody else in the third horizon and it raised a really interesting idea which i think is something that i would want yafet to to push with um partly also particularly after your adventure in portal space actually. well i yeah. was just about to say partly driven by the fact that he's now seen portal space and he's had an insight into some of that and so he i think wants to search for the secrets of portal dynamics and the algorithms in order as i say in the piece to to reopen the first horizon portals but not just to do that because there's a really interesting thing can is it feasible do you think for uh, the people of the third horizon to work out the uh, the secrets of the portals so they can jump from one portal to a different portal than the one next down the line now mm. so i've taken a line from the uh, portal misjump table to argue that yes that is theoretically feasible because if you misjump there is a chance that you'll go into the portal and you'll come out somewhere completely random it's a small chance yes but there's a chance and if there's a chance of it happening surely there's a chance of us unlocking the way of doing it safely so actually mm -hmm. there might be a way um and i'm thinking that you know this is what yafet is also trying to trying to uncover the the, the, the secrets to be able to jump maybe two portals or three portals at a time rather than just the one. But yeah, that's clearly up for you. You know, you as the, the man who's running the campaign. No, I think that, that could be a really interesting way that we could take the campaign, actually, because mm. um, something else I've been uh, working about for a future episode um, kind of touches on, you know, potentially are, are there are there system races? Do, do people compete? Uh, so <laughs> yeah. maybe, maybe the opportunity to jump two portals uh, is something we can explore. And I don't know if you've been seeing the the new version of Star Trek on Netflix, but uh, again, there's a, there's some stuff there. I think about uh, something different to warp technology that allows you to go further, and the terrible darkness between the stars <laughs> that you might encounter when you push that too far. Did they even call it darkness between the stars? And no, they don't. But it looked pretty blooming horrific. <laughs> there was, there was. I mean, it's. I don't know if you, if you haven't seen it. I haven't I don't yet. Want to no. spoil it for you. No. But there are some bodies in the third episode that look like they could have gone through portal space. Okay, fair Awake enough. Is all I'm saying. <laughs>
talked plenty with Tony about uh, your uh, horrific game, uh, in horrific in a good sense, <laughs> Tango Tango 82, and uh, touching on uh, other things like the open game licence as well. So let's yeah. listen to another edition of Players in the Hammam. Originally, we've invited Tony back into the Hammam because he's the only person we could find. <laughs> <laughs> Unfortunately, Andy has chosen to go and do some gaming competition this weekend. Yeah. Um, so, oh, his loss. His loss, our game. Because, Tony, actually, I'm really interested in having you here because you are one of the players that played in Dave's Tango Tango 82 uh, scenario, which we heard about in the last episode, but I didn't play in. So I'm kind of wanting to hear... Uh, player's insight into that and remind me were you there back in the days of Call of Cthulhu when we were playing the thing no I wasn't right. I did not play the original version of the thing scenario didn't so, think so and so and this is my first experience on it and I mean, if, if you had been there and we couldn't remember then it, you know we wouldn't wouldn't have been a surprise because you know you the impact that you have in the group is so is so low. But uh. <laughs> okay, I'm delighted to be here. Thanks for inviting me on the podcast, guys. Hey, look, you're my brother. I've got to be hard to remember. I know we're in the man, but we're not trying to recreate that last scene out of um, out of Eastern Promises. Promises. <laughs> I'm about to discuss your no, thin scenario. <laughs> so how Which positive was... I am about that. <laughs> So it's Dave, a delight having you here, Tony. <laughs> it's fabulous! It's always a pleasure, my fabulous older brother. Thanks. So, uh, Tony, be really honest now. Who's the best GM? Oh, definitely Matthew. You are clearly. <laughs> I thought I'd get that general. one in. No, well, I, 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 I'm, winner here. Just before, um, I'd like to point out the, the method of Tony returning to his home today. <laughs> <laughs> So, Tony, in light of that, who's the best GM? Oh, you're the best GM then, Dave. <laughs> well, um, <clears throat> let's not get into that argument again, again, because there are obviously clear winners and losers there. Um, but like, most Tony... of the loser makes it being me, as well, I can say. <laughs> Tony, uh, tell us about Tango Tango 82 from a player's perspective. Now, Dave, I have to have to be completely honest and say that it was really really good thoroughly thoroughly enjoyed it great great evening that kind of brought everyone really got into and it worked fantastically well thank you Much so i hate to say compliment you but on this <laughs> occasion i'm forced to do so and um uh spoilers for anybody who didn't listen to last uh the last episode but uh it's based on john carpenter's the thing movie and so uh i think we're right in saying that one of the players starts off as the thing pretty much pretty much the was that you Tony? that was me yes which right. is apparently completely random although i had a sneaking suspicion that it would be me okay i don't know why because it was completely <laughs> it random was... so the, the game sets up a couple of scenes at the start which recreate the opening scenes of the movie at which point no one knows no one's been allocated to be the the thing at that point and it's only at the, uh, the the advent of the first night after the, the Swedish pilots and the dogs that they were chasing are on the base that I then secretly rolled the dice to decide who was the thing and then took everybody out of the room for 90 seconds exactly mm -hmm. to then tell them whether or not they were the thing. So it was totally random, Tony. It was, uh, uh, there, was no, you know, there was no GM planning who <laughs> did I want to be the thing behind it at all. 
But it did mean, I guess, telling you that you didn't get the chance to experience the fear and suspicion of your other players. No, that's true. And so we need I to get another one of your players in we at do. some point to do another one of these interviews to find out how it went. Although you could, I could still see <clears throat> the fear and suspicion that was was among the other players. Although, str- strangely, for a lot of the game, it wasn't as high as I expected, considering the group we were playing with is a group that together we often play kind of games of uh, bluffing and suspicion games where there are the co-op games where there's a hidden traitor so as a group we're kind of used to being suspicious of each other (laughs) and that's a kind of standard feature of the games that we play all the time so I was quite surprised that in this occasion actually the level of paranoia and suspicion apart from a couple of the players was lower than usual and I think the other thing to bear in mind is that the players who are playing the thing can also have fear and suspicion because they don't want to be found out. They know the others are hunting them. Yeah. So it might not be so much suspicion because you know who the other things are. But still, there's the, the fear of, of being revealed and being identified. Yeah, and actually you don't always know who who the other things are because I um, assimilated Morgan first. And then in other scenes where I wasn't present, he then assimilated other players that I didn't know about so I didn't necessarily know who all the things were no, because true. other things had been created Ooh, late true. later on that I wasn't present for. The way I, the way I played it was, or the way I, I planned to play it was that if you were a thing, you would know who all the other things were. Yeah. When you met them, there's always difficulty in telling. Yes. Without Morgan telling everybody else, telling yeah. the thing about the new things he's made. But because um, obviously, yeah, the scenes took place. When people went off to do things, the scenes took place out of the rebuild, mm. so people didn't know what the other characters were up to. And then when you come back into the main room, everyone else, obviously it's difficult in that case then to, for the other things, Morgan in this case, to let me know who else had been assimilated. Yeah. How did you find it as a player with that sort of rotation of being in the room or being out of the room? Where when I was having to take people out to the kitchen to to run their scene with everybody else being left behind, how did that play out? I think that worked, for those who were left behind. That worked I, absolutely fine because obviously those left behind then kind of discuss <clears throat> what was going on and talk about their suspicions and, and not knowing what the other characters were doing or what was happening with the other characters was part of the the thing that increased the paranoia mm. and suspicion. So I think. It, in the context of the game even though you weren't being directly involved in the scene that the game was running at that time it still was a, a kind of key part of the game it didn't feel like you were out of the game waiting for the oh, game good, to carry on good. That's great. I was quite concerned as the thing that if the humans were well organised they could have made it very difficult for me to assimilate anyone Yeah. if they were really careful and only moved around in groups of three and never, you know, had people going off on their own or in just groups of two. It could have been really difficult. Yeah. But actually, the humans were incredibly sloppy at the start. <laughs> and Morgan and I, I can't remember what what we had to do, but we went off on our own, just the two of us. And everyone was happy for just the two of us to go. You were doing something with the dogs, weren't you? Cause yeah, possibly because Morgan was the, the, the dog handler. Yeah. So I could immediately assimilate him and that was one thing done. And at the same time, Connor, who was the mechanic or the pilot, had gone off to do repair the helicopter on his own. Yeah. So our plan was to just wander around. After I'd assimilated Morgan, we should go around and then get Connor as well. Yeah. That was slightly scuppered because Paul, who was the 
commander of the base then went out to talk to Connor about something, so he was there and slightly scuppered that. I think it's, uh, as a GM, it felt, I could feel your your struggles a little bit. And um, particularly when the players were going around in groups of three, which was fine. I mean, that, that showed that they were having a little bit of suspicion about and thinking about how to protect themselves. <coughs> but the uh, particularly when you assimilated both Connor and Paul you know you'd, you'd gone out to the to the radio shack to, re- to repair the radio your dice rolls had been so poor that I hadn't let you repair it so I had to go and get some more kit and Connor just went oh, I'll go <laughs> and off he went yeah, on his so own. that's that's illustrates really how the the dice mechanic the rules that you use the the mutant year zero stroke correlates type rules um, impacted the game. Mm. There's a couple of key points based on that, but also the sloppiness of the humans. So there, the three of us went together, all very sensible, um, sticking to a group of three, so we'll be safe and can't be caught off guard. The dice rolls, again, were so bad that we had multiple failures. We failed to repair the thing we were repairing in the radio shack, so we needed to go and get some other spare parts. And the sensible thing for the humans would be to say, okay, we'll go together, we'll stick together with three, we'll go and get the spare yeah. parts, we'll come back. But instead, Connor just went, oh, I'll go and get them, you wait here, I'll go off. <laughs> so he went off, I was left on my own with Pete, so it immediately simulated him, Connor came back and simulated him. <laughs> another, another two things. So a combination of, of the, the dice mechanic and the sloppiness of the humans. Yeah. Now I want to ask about the dice mechanic, because um, obviously I'd played this scenario 30, 30 years, years ago, ago. Uh, I'm, I, with, with uh, Call of Cthulhu rules um, now I have also played Coriolis and run Coriolis but I haven't played Mutant Year Zero and you've played Mutant yes. with, with Dave as yes. well so what did you think of the way that Dave mashed up the Coriolis and the Mutant versions of the Year Zero engine well, as it's called nowadays yes um, to, to create this game? Well, the, the dice mechanics aren't that different anyway. The main difference in the, the dice mechanics between the two is the way you're, the the consequences of pushing a dice, a die roll, yeah. is worked out. So in Mutant Year Zero, you have failures. As well as successes on your roll, you have failures. If you push uh, a dice roll, then those failures become activated and that gives you negative consequences. Or consequences actually that aren't always negative. You can get additional mutations in Mutant Year Zero, or a piece of kit can break, mm. or whatever. So there's an immediate, direct consequence to that pushing that die roll and getting the failures. Whereas with Coriolis, the consequence of pushing a die roll is that you give darkness points to the GM. So the GM then has control really of what the consequences of pushing that it's kind of a future undefined yeah. consequence when you push which I th- in Coriolis whereas yes. you need to do zero which I think means you probably probably means you're less inclined to push dials in mutant year zero I think because there's an immediate direct consequence yeah because in mutant if you if you get some negative failure uh, rolls on the dice they will then apply to the stat which is relevant to the to the activity you're you're taking, and that will come off your uh, mm. that stat. And if that stat reaches zero, uh, in in mutant year zero, you you're broken, but you also take a critical hit. You don't get crits in the same way in mutant as you do in in Coriolis. Mm-hmm. The way that applied in the thing game in Tango Tango eighty two was 
Paul getting very frustrated at his bad roles when he was trying to make Molotov cocktails when he, Ed and Morgan were together and Morgan was the sole thing of the three of them and he, he pushed the dice so hard that he broke himself he, he fell in a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in, a, in a heap on the floor Morgan immediately assimilated Ed um, and then they both immediately assimilated Paul mm. so the, the push mechanic led yeah, to... Yeah, so it was another, another key moment actually yeah. where the, the dice mechanic determined a gave the opportunity to the thing to to actually assimilate others yeah so in that case actually it didn't depend on the stupidity of the humans to work it was just although I guess you could say that Paul pushing that role pushing in the too way far. that he did yeah, was yeah. a bit stupid because it was running the risk of, of being broken and he was familiar with Mutant because he was one of the players in the Mutant campaign that we played last time round mm-hmm. but again I think I do wonder whether he'd sort of forgotten that and I think yeah, if I ran it, it again, I'd remind while, a little while since we'd played Mutant, wasn't it? Yeah, and I think if I ran it again, I'd remind everybody at the start of the consequences of pushing die rolls and uh, that kind of thing. So those two moments really kind of sealed the the fate of the humans because that there was only two that humans left. The majority of of the humans had been assimilated, and there was only two left, and they had no, no real chance then <laughs> from that point on. Although they did try, bless them. <clears throat> yeah, they had a, had a they good did go, have a good go, but they both died. They, so what came over from Coriolis? What what bits of, uh, of the Year Zero engine did you take from Coriolis and add to, if you like, Mutant Year Zero? The, well, the key thing I did from Coriolis was use the damage and stress, the you know the hit points and the mine points. Right. So in in Mutant, you take damage against all of the four stats. <clears throat> right. So and if any of those four stats reaches zero, you get broken. Whereas obviously in Coriolis, you put strength and agility to make your damage score. Yeah, and uh, wits and empathy to make your stress score, and so I used that because then that gave you a slightly bigger pool of hit points um, and mind points. And I wanted mind points to be quite important. I mean, one of the great things about playing Cthulhu mm. rules for this was the whole sanity yeah. uh, value, the sand score that you get. And then if you see things that are horrible, you would then roll against your sand to see how you reacted, um, whether you could cope with it or not. In this one, I wanted people to have to roll against their empathy and then take damage to their stress, mm-hmm. their mind points. If they saw a thing yeah. transforming, or a, a, a human totally torn apart, or something, so I wanted to try and recreate that. I'm not sure how much that came through, actually, in the game itself. It did because there was a, some early points in the game where we first see the the um, dog that's been assimilated mm. conversing back into an alien as it tries to assimilate one of the other dogs. That uh, I think pretty much all the characters see that. So yeah. everyone who saw that then had to do that role. So I think that did come across. Yeah, good. Fine. I think after that, until the the final confrontation between the two remaining humans and all the all the uh, things that had been created, probably didn't really apply because m- most of the stuff happened in secret, or the only person that saw the assimilation happening was the person being assimilated. Yeah, but then it was too late anyway. It was too late. For them. Yeah. So I think that's the key thing I took from <coughs> Coriolis mm-hmm. um, to, to, to run this. I did use um, Coriolis fire rules in case we had that, because they, 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 they are slightly different from the Mutant Year Zero rules, but nobody ever got burned um, to that point in the game. No, and then not I just, flamethrowers, that's your problem. In Call I, of Cthulhu we had loads of flamethrowers. We did, we did. <laughs> I did I did have a, a conscious think about... Um, Actually, is this something that in the movie as well is a bit odd? Why yeah. would why would an Antarctic research base have flamethrowers? <laughs> <laughs> so it's I almost mean, like it wasn't a documentary. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So I'm not going to criticise John Carpenter for putting yeah. flamethrowers in his movie because no. it's, as I said, one of my favourite movies of all time. But I thought, I'm not going to give you flamethrowers in this one. But if somebody wants to try and manufacture one, one with a gearhead or, yeah. mm. as you said in the last episode, Matthew, use um, an aerosol spray with a, with a lighter or something, mm. then fine, let's go with it. But yeah. I'm not going to allow you to run around with sort of military-grade uh, flamethrowers. Yeah. Flamethrowers. Slightly was... outside. I guess that maybe, but I do like this idea, you know, the, the, uh, using the the mind points thing from Coriolis, mm. and I wonder whether if we do some more horror games at some point, um, there there could be a. Uh, neither of you guys have played Knights Black Agent, which I'm very keen to run with you guys at some point. Well, we did point. play at your birthday thing. Didn't oh, we, we did. We yeah, did. yeah, the um, Stoker. Yeah, the yeah, Stoker. that was excellent. That was really oh, yeah. good. But in there, there's a stability stat, uh, and again, when you start seeing stuff. Um, you roll against your stability stat, and um, you you know you can lose see if you can cope with it. Yeah. See if you can cope with it, and I think that it, that's a, that's quite an elegant way of, of doing it within the Year Zero engine, which yes. we'll have to explore in future. Uh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, in terms of the other rules, I largely just mashed up um, skills and talents just to suit my needs. Mm. Um, so some. For example, the ranged combat from Coriolis became shoot, which is the same as the Mutant Year Zero version. Um, I added the skill of scavenger, which I mentioned in the last episode, which was trying to give the players an opportunity to do something innovative. If I hadn't anticipated that they might want to do something and they said, oh, I need this particular bit of gizmo, um, I didn't want just to give it to them or not give it to yeah. them. I wanted to then say, right, well, see if you can find something that fits the bill. And I think that we didn't really use that again I don't think in the game it didn't really come up because mm. I'm not sure how I'm, I, I think you know, I'm surprised about two things one the as you mentioned earlier Tone the how unsuspicious many of the human players were with the exception of Rob yes. in particular and Dean as well who were very very paranoid and suspicious they and were the last two surviving humans yeah mm -hmm. funnily enough funnily enough um and then this idea of people trying to come up with really innovative things to do around around the camp to either protect yourselves or, or help kind of find the alien. And Dean had some really good ideas about how to identify the thing. But we didn't get, like in the game we had back in the day, Roger, who was playing the game, went and <coughs> set up charges around the camp, linked them all together to his, his plunger and sat in a one of the shacks saying anyone comes near me will you go <laughs> we didn't get any of that but maybe that says more about Roger than the player <laughs> yeah Roger the uh, avowed pacifist in real life <laughs> yes exactly yeah. indeed yes um, he obviously worked out his violent tendencies in role playing yes. which is probably a good place to really good, work out your thing, violent yes. tendencies isn't it that brings me yes. on actually uh, talking of the, these flavours um, I don't know whether you've listened to our last episode Tony obviously I have. have yes, of course, uh, of course good. I have. Even though obviously know. he would say so <laughs> yeah, yeah, in these so. circumstances. Before so, we move off to the thing, just one more. I find a kind of compliment to you, Dan. Oh, oh God, God. Do I you have to compliment you. Okay, you going to compliment me when you get that really pain, horrible, <laughs> strange look on your face. Like I've, I've rewatched since playing the scenario. I have rewatched the film, and I actually enjoyed the film more after having played it. Oh wow! And it really made me feel actually the the scenario did conjure up the feel and actually the film really well. Well, it's funny, actually, I was thinking, you know, even though you were saying a lot of the players you felt were too trusting, of course, that is what happens in the film. Yes. yes. People do wander off in the dark on their own. Yes. And so I was thinking, as you were describing that, 
that doesn't that doesn't feel wrong. Yeah, of course, there's one or two paradise characters. Yes, yeah, it only feels wrong because it's a group of players that are are normally extremely <laughs> untrusted of each other in the games that we play. Yeah. So just oh, to remind everybody, uh, Dave's notes or, or, or prep work from Tango Tango 82 are all available on his blog, which is Dave. Uh, RPGGods.org. It's all there. Use it, please. Make the most of it. Um, and give me feedback if there's things you think we could do differently, and I'd love to change it. But um, enjoy it is the, name, is the main thing. Brilliant. Um, yeah, now, last episode, you will have heard, Tony, that Dave and I were very excited about the Kickstarter that went live yes. while we were recording. As we were recording. Um, which you missed for 20 minutes after <laughs> yeah. I spotted it. Yeah, and but I was not to interrupt our flow. But I was did. I was still supporting number 108 when we when 217. Not, not a competition. <laughs> <laughs> I'd have preferred to be supporter number 8. Actually, I think I think I would have been supporter number 9, but it took me so long to type while talking to you <laughs> while we were having the uh, thing that there was 108. But um, I, I'm sure you'll get over it eventually, Matt. <laughs> now, for me, I'm excited because this is an, yet another flavour of the Year Zero engine oh, with indeed. with a, yet another set of new mechanics and and stuff that we can we can um, explore and use. Uh, weirdly, I'm I'm not that keen on, if you like, really trad retro fantasy with dwarves and elves and stuff, but I am excited by this game because I think because of the whole mm, having a big map to explore, which is something I think we did more regularly in our youth when, when we had time to prep big maps yes, and yes. regular weekly sessions to, to explore them, and it's more difficult now. Um, so I'm quite looking forward to it. Uh, we, we think we might have convinced Andy to to kick in. He hasn't yet. Yes, I was, trying, I was trying to convince him that he should kick in and then he should run it once he finishes the Pendragon campaign, which surely I mean, must come to an end soon. I mean, well, <laughs> no, I, I, we've been playing Pendragon for 30 odd years, uh, and I, I, think, I, think, I think Andy's thinking it is going to come to an end pretty soon. At the um, end of November, possibly. Possibly, well, yes. I, there's been about four scenarios where I fully expected my character, uh, the High King of All Great Britain, um, to die horribly. And I very nearly did in the last It's come one. very close. It has it's come very close, close. is not it? But I think that then probably sees a, a good a good ending of the campaign when yeah. I die and presumably Arthur takes over unless I can kill him first. Um, <laughs> I mean, Arthur, our loyal ally. Uh, well, he has been a pretty loyal ally most of the time. Yeah. I do suspect his motives a little bit. <laughs> um, but he, yeah, but the fact that I was, he, he, stood, he stood aside to allow me to become king was a bit of a surprise at the time. But maybe Andy didn't want me and Arthur to have that fight at that point. Because that would have ended the campaign one way or the other, I guess. So but anyway, I'm hoping yeah. that Andy will want to run Forbidden Lands. And I think he might. I think yeah. he might. I, I think he's quite keen to run a, a, a trad fantasy scenario. So that would be great. Yeah, that would be great. Um, have you kicked in, Tony? I haven't kicked in. No, I've never kicked into Kickstarter ever. <laughs> well, it will be Andy's so, first time yeah. if he can yeah. afford it. He's waiting for some money to come in from one of his jobs, um, so he might not be able to afford it. Um, but I might. Maybe we can lend him the money. Yeah. I, I, I've told yeah. him if, if if he can't, I'll 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 we'll cover it. I'll, yeah. I'll cover it. Because um, yeah, it'd be great to get him to be to be running the system as well, um, and it would be great for us 
to play you with. and I, Dave, to play together. And you, Tony, but of course, oh, we're always... <laughs> <laughs> but Dave and I, Tony one of us is always on the other side of the screen, Tony is what who? I'm saying. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I thought I just complimented you. <laughs> no, I know, I know. Um, so, have you yes. read about it? Did Tony make you look at the Kickstarter even? And... Uh, I haven't really looked at it in the detail. I'm aware of it, familiar with what the concept is, but not, I haven't really got into the finer detail of it. I mean, it's very similar, uh, as with all the other Year Zero Engine games, you know, the, the concepts behind it are very similar. Year Zero Engine TM. Uh, <laughs> TM for your Ligand, yes. even though it was our idea. Even though... <laughs> They might, they might debate that, possibly, but uh, uh, yes, happy to claim it for the moment till we get told to, to wind our necks in. Um, so yeah, it's going to have a very, very similar feel. Uh, again, you'd get your special talent for the, 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 the race or your kin, you get special talent for your, your occupation or your profession, and then you get to choose another one on top of that. I don't know very much about the ARC concept that it might try and... Like yeah, it's talking about this um, stronghold stronghold concept. Yeah, which I think, which I like the idea of, which I really like the idea yeah. of, which is having done a dungeon delve or radio to keep or something, you might go, this would make a good base of operations. What do we need to turn it into our dungeon state? So is that similar to the the arc concept from Mutant Year Zero? Yeah, a base. Yes, and I, I'm quite I quite like that idea. I mean, again, in Pendragon, that's the thing that one does. Uh, mm. uh, we became um, barons, barons of Lydney, first of all, yes. and then, uh, uh, and now I, well, I now I'm the king. You're the king, yeah, <laughs> okay. And I have palace, don't I? Um, but yeah, I think that idea of building that base is quite interesting. Um, yes, and we talked about last time about the idea of having a arc concept in Coriolis, mm -hmm. and didn't really come to any strong conclusions <clears throat> on on what I might look like. But I mean, how do you feel as a as a Coriolis player? Would you welcome the idea of some kind of arc concept in the game, or or would that be sort of you know, one one thing, you know, too much for the campaign we've got running now? Well, I think the campaign we've got running now, we're on our way to a particular system to find a particular individual, Jubal's brother, and that. It's taking us quite a long time. Yeah. So we're not in the campaign running now is not one where we're going back to our our base operations or back to Coriolis or any other kind yeah. of permanent base so at the end of every for a year end of every scenario. So it's not like mutant where it's really based around the arc and actually going away from your arc is a really dangerous, risky thing because the land is contaminated and it's really about surviving in your arc. Coriolis has quite a different feel it's more open and exploratory of the whole third horizon mm. so i think i'm not averse to the idea of having a a base to go back to and realistically you would probably have have something like that but so yeah so the obviously the the campaign running now is we're out exploring it's taken we spent four or five scenarios in zalos and we've only just managed to get out of there um in the kind of last but one scenario so we're not going back to to a base. The, the base our base yeah. is our, is the ship it's an interesting really. distinction actually isn't it <clears throat> so yeah you know in year zero in mutant year zero you are going back to that that is your really your base of operations and actually your your scope to mm. 
to stray far from that is really limited. Yeah, so you're the further you go, the, the more likely you are to die. Yeah, you're never going too far away from your arc because it's too dangerous. And in the campaign that we did run, when you did go too far from your arc, and horribly wrong, <laughs> you all well, you didn't all get di- you didn't all die, but you all got assimilated by uh, by a bunch of robots. Yes, um, well, you almost got away with it. And that ended it, and that ended the campaign there and then, <laughs> um, which was quite good timing because Coriolis was coming along as well. So, but yeah, so I guess the, that does then that's a really good insight because I I hadn't really thought about it like that, and it would then in our in on the basis of our discussion last mm. time, Matt, that would then bring us back to the ship being the yeah being the base rather than a haven or a planet or a space station somewhere. Unless, of course, you then accepted that it might be eight or ten scenarios, potentially, if you're going on a bit of an odyssey, before you could then influence what happens in the base again. Since the days of Traveller, I guess a lot of science fiction has been very much... Uh, space murder hobos hasn't it in terms mm. of role playing very much let's cause as much havoc as we can on this planet let's steal whatever it is we want and rather than face the consequences let's just mm. go to a different planet well, and that is what's been happening mm. in the campaign that I'm running with Tony Yeah, where you know, they're not going to want to go back to Zalas anytime soon we're certainly not um, and <laughs> I've already chosen that when they've reached Odicon and completed you know, their task they're going to go back the other way yeah whatever the pirates around there think yes. Yeah. Yes. so there is Absolutely. a little bit of that although not not anywhere near as much yeah. as you would in, in Traveller it wasn't, even, yeah it wasn't really by design we 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 didn't want any trouble governor we wanted to get, get out but I think that's probably what most Traveller players would say as well yeah. though isn't it even, even as they're nuking from orbit just to be sure and then jumping out <laughs> of the system but that doesn't need to be the way the campaign goes and I think no. you know there could still be I I mean I think it makes me realise possibly why they thought they, you know, at Freel again they might well have gone oh let's scrap the Haven rule uh, let's scrap the, the Ark rules because that's not relevant to science fiction space games and they were probably right yes. most of the campaigns aren't going to use them well, but I reckon there might be some you could though well, you could yeah yeah. yeah. Well, in Mutant Year Zero it's a, it really is based around the arc and the kind of between scenario bits where you're developing the arc and you're choosing the projects you're going to do a lot of the game is about developing and maintaining your, your hope mm. whereas in Coriolis again there's a lot more scope for going further afield and with the jumps the cost of doing portal jumps means you're probably not going to go too far in one scenario yeah. so you are inevitably going to if you have a permanent base you're going to be away from it for much longer periods in Coriolis than and yeah, we did in Year Zero so the focus on it inevitably would be less yeah yeah. but I think you know I'm just aware of the last this is after all re- let us remember the byline for Coriolis which is Firefly meets Arabian Nights and the last Firefly or Serenity campaign that you ran Dave we were in a base. We had our haven, for want yes. of a better word, that was developing, and we could well have run that in in a way that was about us build. Well, we did defend the community against all sorts of interlopers, and we were building a system of law and stuff like that in there, in a way, and that could have been running this sort of system. So it's not impossible to run campaigns. No, no. I guess the beauty of the recently announced open gaming license. Is that if people want to run those campaigns and test out that sort of system, they can, and then they can publish it for the other parts of the community community that want yeah. to do that sort of stuff. Yeah, the open game license um, is a really good idea, and I wonder, yeah. I wonder who, 
I wonder who thought of that idea. I just, we, I, could, I, we could go I, back and I check think, on the internet and I check think, what I think to our listeners, um, I, I don't know whether Free, free, uh, free League and we're already considering something like this, um, but right now in the Hammam, the door isn't very wide and Matt's head <laughs> is about 10 foot wider than the door because he did suggest it on the forums and that was backed by uh, another forum member and then... Immediately after, it was a stretch goal. And then immediately after that, it was a successfully completed stretch goal, which is brilliant. And um, so, well done. Thank you, man, for your idea. (laughs) And that means that, you know, at some point, there could be a professional version of Tango Tango 82 out there, ready um, for people to download, full of lovely illustrations and and stuff like that. Well, I'm working on it as we speak. (laughs) Excellent. Well, I'm not, but I will. (laughs) Well, I don't know if anybody's even downloaded it yet to even play it, let alone buy the damn thing. But uh, yeah, um, but here in the Hammam, we are there is there is a glow of self satisfaction and smugness. <laughs> I have to admit, isn't there always? And, and I, <laughs> I notice, guys, that we are thirty three minutes into this recording, and we've got uh, and more we've got business to conduct uh, in the Hammam this afternoon. A game of Cinder Room. The first time I'm going to run that, so that'll be really interesting. Yeah, now so, Simba Room. I'm just wondering whether we need to expand uh, the Coriolis effect uh, to cover maybe all of Year Zero Engine games, and maybe there's something about all of Swedish games or Swedish games translated into English. I'm not going to learn Swedish just to play Swedish games. I'll <laughs> <laughs> well, get my wife to translate to it. <laughs> uh, I think so, and I, I, I wonder whether. We can have suddenly spin-offs for now. You know, the Simbaroom effect, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And What, you mean uh, occasional specials? Yeah, yeah, something like that. And uh, whatever else we might we might think that would be um, people might be interested to listen to. Anyway, any feedback on that idea, uh, do drop us a line on all the usual routes, which we'll tell you about in some other part of this uh, episode. A bit later on in the programme. But for now, um, thanks very much again, Tone, for coming along to Players in Hammam. Pleasure as always. It's been a delight having you here. And um, thanks, Matthew. So it was great to have Tony back in Hammam. It was really pleased that he was he was uh, willing to come back in again. He was really uh, delighted to do so. And um, I think we should uh, invite him in again sometime in the not too distant future for some more discussions with the players. But moving yeah, on. Yeah, and maybe some other players. Uh, <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah, not just Tony. Yeah, indeed. I think... Uh, yeah, from your campaign or, or get Andy in at some point. Uh, I, talking of which... Actually, Andy sent me an email with an idea uh, that I have expanded upon for talent of the episode. The natives of Namada are a proud but primitive race, which foundation anthropologists believe are ancient humanites. Fierce warriors, perhaps bred for some long-forgotten war, they organise in tribes and compete in an arcane system of intertribal sports and challenges. Foundation scientists have identified a unique response to trauma in the Namadan physiology which has become known as the Namadan talent. My long-standing gaming friend Andy, who plays Salem, the humanite with a hardened epidermis in my Coriolis campaign, sent me an idea for a new humanite talent. What he actually said, in a text, was Just another quick thing, old bean, I have thought of a talent for humanites. When injured, the humanite gets a bonus blast of strength or speed due to the nerve impulse boost, just like good old martial law. Now, 
Given our international audience, I should clarify that we're not talking about government by the military or martial law, the character from Tekken. Instead, we're talking about the ultra-violent San Francisco cop charged with hunting down rogue superheroes, created by Pat Mills and Kevin O'Neill, and first published by Marvel's Epic Comics imprint. Anyhow, he can't feel pain, though, to be honest, I can't recall if getting hurt actually increases his strength. It's a great idea, and given that the Forbidden Plans Kickstarter had just started, and that surely that game would include some sort of berserker talent, I wanted to explore how it might turn out in Coriolis. So the first thing I asked Andy was whether he thought the increase would take effect with HP damage, or only after a critical hit. He said, I think it has to be crits, or otherwise it would be too powerful. In some ways, it's a kind of berserker talent, I suppose. Great minds think alike. Although, I spent some time looking at the critical hit route. It's attractive, especially down at the lower end of the table. Your berserker gets their nose bloodied, is knocked back for a round or two, but then comes back harder and or faster. That works for crits up to about 42 on the table of page 96. But higher than that, and you're into injuries with the potential to immobilise. Yes, the talent could have special rules for how critical injuries are dealt with, but then that starts getting messy. So what about hit points? How many hit points do you have to take before the talent is triggered? When it is triggered, do the increased strength or agility increase the number of hit points that you can take? I toyed with ratios. Every two hit points taken being worth one point, you could add to your strength, agility, or, I thought, maybe to your initiative. If it was two for one, I thought, and strength and agility max out at five each, then you don't get into a loop of damage that you take, enabling you to take more damage. Such a loop could work, I thought, but only if there are consequences after the fight. But I was still nagged by the feeling that there is just a little too much paperwork involved in keeping track of hit points, strength and agility and current initiative. And the effect was too linear. Cinematically, all the best berserkers look beaten. Then they lift their head with fire in their eyes and you think, "Uh uh-oh, now I've made him angry. And that made me think there was a simpler solution. They look beaten. The talent comes into effect when they're broken. Now, my first thought was to use hit points twice. The first time the PC hit zero hit points, they don't actually become broken, but rather get a second wind, returning to full hit points and adding one to strength or agility and initiative. The effect remains until the fight is over or until they hit zero hit points a second time. But again, there's an accounting problem. How should a player use their HP track twice? Putting one check on each box the first time and then turning that into a cross the second time? Maybe. But I had a better idea. The Berserker Rage should be a mental effect. So, let me present the Nomadan talent. A character with this talent can elect to assign physical damage to mind points instead. Any stress damage is also taken from mind points as usual. At zero mind points, instead of a breakdown, the character rages. The character can still take any actions that involve dice, but for the duration of the rage, increase both strength and agility to 5 
and deduct the number of points required to do so from empathy first and then wits. Neither can drop below one. The character's current initiative increases by one also. From this point on, damage is deducted from hit points as usual. The rage lasts for six hours or until the character is broken, knocked unconscious by a critical injury or treated with command or medicurgy as for breakdown. As for breakdown, upon recovery, roll one die and if the result is one, reduce mine points permanently by one point. So I didn't send Andy that whole article, but I did send him the talent and he sent back an email really quickly saying, and it has surprised me because I didn't think he actually wanted it for himself, <laughs> but he really wants this talent. Well, frankly, I'm not bloody surprised because I mean, this is, this is excellent. I love what you've done here, Matt, but I have, um, to use your words, I have a few concerns that I want to raise. <laughs> um, there's, there's a couple of things here, but I'll move on. I'll move directly to the, to the talent before I think there's a couple of other things in your build-up background which again I love the way you do all that that suggests some other ideas I'll, I'll, I'll mention those but let's first go to the the, the Nomadan talent itself okay this feels what is wrong with my Nomadan talent well I, I don't think there's anything wrong with it I think it's just enormously overpowered it feels to me and I'll explain I'll explain why so you start out by saying that a player can elect to assign physical damage to mind points instead of hit points. That's fine. That's, but that's, isn't that just kind of doubling your hit points? So all you do in a combat is siphon off damage off from your hit points to your mind points until you get down to one. And then you take it on your hit points. So what you're in effect doing is giving, giving your character with this talent an immediate bonus of hit points equal to their mind points minus one. Which seems really, really, really powerful, but that's just the yeah. F- I mean, but that that's came just... out of me starting to actually do it by saying, "Well, let's have let's go through the hit points." Yeah, twice. Yes, you know, one before you berserk, and then when 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 you've when you're in the rage, you get them again. And then I thought the reason why I actually changed, I thought actually transferring it to mind points was twofold. One is that if anybody's doing anything towards building a character who's a good soldier, they have probably uh, prioritised their physical stats over their mental stats. So one of the reasons I went for mind points is I thought their their, their mind point track wouldn't be quite as long as their uh, hit point track. So effectively it wasn't going to double in the way that just using hit points twice would have done. Yeah, and the I, other thing... I get that, yeah. The, uh, which uh, I'll just say before you, you carry on. <laughs> the other thing, of course, is that there is... Um, whereas the hit point track, you just recover your hit points when you're treated in the end. Uh, the mind point track, when that goes down to zero, that does have uh, or can have a chance of permanent damage or permanent yeah. trauma. So uh, yes, those, I, that's why the, I went for that. Yeah, I saw that. I saw that. Um, but I think there's kind, yeah, there's kind of... It feels to me there's two talents in one here, because I think the rage talent, the rage aspect of the talent, is probably worthy of a talent in itself, over and above the allowing to assign physical damage to mind points part of the talent, which again is probably worthy of a talent in itself. It's uh, I think it's that it's that powerful. So I it it feels to me that um, you've got probably two really good talents, but 
you've put them together, which perhaps makes it a bit more a bit more powerful than a bit more powerful than perhaps it, it ought to be. I had a little look in um, uh, in both in both Coriolis and Mutant Year Zero. There are talents that do something around getting broken and then getting back up again. In oh, uh, yeah, I just, I, before you go on that, <laughs> the other thing I wanted to say is I wanted to get this out quickly before we saw what I'm convinced there's going to be a berserker talent yeah. in Forbidden Lands. And I just wanted to um, uh, think, well, what would a berserker be in my head yeah. before we, we, we see what what the guys from Freel again think in Forbidden Lands? No. But admittedly, I haven't even, of course, looked at or didn't think that there would be one in um, in in mutant year zero so tell me about that one it's not so much a berserker talent but it's a it's a getting more hit points after you get broken talent and it's called never surrender and it gives you a roll on your strength when you're broken um, and each success restores one point of strength immediately so you you go down but you get up again straight away Uh, that's a once per use um a once per use talent per scenario once per session once per yeah once per what did i say once, you said one. Well, you you, kind of, you said once per scenario. Once per session. Um, yeah. Stumbled over the words a bit. Then, <laughs> yeah. So, but I'm I'm desperately trying to take the edge off what I'm saying now because you like you sound like you're upsetting you and I don't want that. No, no, no. It's okay. I'm not stressed. <laughs> I'm when, when, when I've taken enough points of stress, you'll know about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you've got this talent, have you? Okay. <laughs> um, no. So, so this, so so there is that suggestion. Also in Coriolis, the Lady of Tears talent is also similar whereby you restore one point when you're broken by stress or damage. Um, that's a, mm. And that's a one use per game or per session, and it costs a darkness point. So I just it just feels that being able to... I mean, let, let's say, you know, even your best combat character is going to have at least four, if not five, on their mind point track, which is going to give them at least three, if not four, extra hit points if they're allowed to assign physical damage to mind points kind of willy-nilly so i think you may well be onto something then i I really like it um there might be something else in there about how often you could do it or if it costs a darkness point each time you do it perhaps but also i must admit now i went for this uh, so i had been thinking about once per session definitely Mm. um and I must admit, I entirely forgot about darkness points. I think I was going to add a darkness point. Say, you, know, you had to have a dark point can to you, trigger it. Can you forget about darkness points next time you play? That would be good. <laughs> I'll try my best. <laughs> but yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. I was going to add a darkness point in to trigger it, or just mention that it cost a darkness point to trigger, because, by God, it's dark. But I think I got, <laughs> one of the reasons why I forgot is I then got very excited by, I was going to say, the rage lasts until the end of the combat. And then I thought, no, actually... You don't want the rage lasting till the end of the combat, because this guy, because of this thing where I said that you know you get this amazing strength and agility, but at the cost of your empathy and wits, or yeah. your empathy first and then your wits. Um, I, I quite like the idea of then you've got to deal with six hours of game time, not necessarily play time, but six six hours of game time, where you can't do anything social. I, yeah, so I, I did, um, I, I noticed that. So I, I, I think in a way that was my, I, I, you know, for that reason, I didn't think you'd want to do it more than once per session. But I think you're right. You could easily say this is a once per session thing. Yeah. Because frankly, you know, if, if it happened twice in a session, it would screw up everybody else's fun. 
I, so I th- yeah. yeah, I'm happy to add that limit in. Yeah. I think. I yeah, no problem at all. <laughs> I think I, I I picked out your the rage lasts for six hours, and I'm really glad you mentioned that because I was going to ask you about it because certainly on the face of it that looks kind of too long, but the way you've explained it makes a lot of sense. I wonder if that the effects of the rage on your empathy and your wits lasts for six hours, but the actual rage doesn't. So maybe at the end of the rage, all your stats go back to normal, uh, your your strength and your agility return to normal, but actually you're effectively mentally and empathetically damaged by it. So you end up with yeah. your mind points staying low and those those stats staying low for six hours. Because otherwise, the way well, yeah, the way that, it feels like it work. felt it felt very much like um, you've kind of got the Incredible Hulk running around for six hours, pounding you know doors in and people's heads in. Whereas, <laughs> well, actually, funny enough, whereas actually, Incredible what, whereas, Hulk was a character that I had in my head yeah. when I was thinking, in fact, about the thing in Age of Ultron where Black Widow has become the person that talks the Hulk down. Yes, when yeah. it's time to talk the Hulk down. And, you know, just... And the other thing is, when I, when I hit upon this and I read the rules from Breakdown and stuff like that, and I was thinking, well, I want to use as many of those standard rules for Breakdown as I can in this. So the idea is that, untreated, the race lasts for six hours, but somebody with Command or Medikurgy could uh, could treat yeah. the, uh, the mind points and, and, and then calm the person down. Yes. Um, I think it feels to me that the 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 effect that that you're going for or the best effect you're going for there is for the six hours after that happens you are totally susceptible to being broken by mind points and if you are kind of in your rage so actually you don't need to worry about mind points because if somebody pisses you off you just punch them again uh i wonder whether there is a dynamic there actually because you should be weaker after the rage has happened you've taken the benefit of the rage in the combat you've won the combat but actually after that you get your you know you've had your high now you've got your low yeah i wonder whether it works kind of better that way but i really like it i'll tell you what we could i think we can probably play test this because andy wants it well or there's another question to to (laughs) ask here um so when Andy came back saying, oh, yeah, I'll, I'll have that one. I'll have that Namadan DNA. And I was going, but no, Andy, you're humanite. Well, I haven't actually said this to him yet, but in my head, yes. I was going, but you've already got a humanite talent. I don't think you can have more than one humanite talent. Um, however, in this case, I had been thinking I was, was writing this and, you know, we had three established characters so I wasn't imagining anybody was going to be rolling a new one soon unless I rolled another 66 by home school. <laughs> um, yeah you're not going to let me off it twice now are you <laughs> <laughs> uh, and uh, I wasn't thinking this would come up in play as a player character so I was immediately thinking how am I going to use this as a GM and I thought it would be great fun if you met some guys knock them down in combat and then they got up again yeah. Like this. And how would you deal with that? A little bit like Fireflies Reavers, if you like. Um, so I was seeing it very much as non-player character type um, thing. But now Andy suggested it. I must admit, there's a wicked side of me that wants to say, yeah, Andy, you know, maybe this is something that develops out of the DNA that um, has been created. And then we can we can actually play test this and see. Uh, see exactly where it breaks the system. Yeah, I mean, the other way you could do it potentially is have it as some form of biosculpt. 
Where... Oh, now that's a good idea. So it, you know, yeah. rather than gene splicing, it's uh, then it can come with a particularly high cost because bioscopes are very expensive. Yeah, and that would be another cost that you know that that deflates its um, its its superpowerness a bit. <laughs> yes. some sort of neural sheathing. I'm liking that. Yeah, Ooh. so that Ooh, might yes. work quite Ooh. well. Ooh. Oh, I do like that. <laughs> so, I think the last comment I would make on this, that uh, if uh, if you're going to leave it as it is, I'm really glad that you're giving it to Andy because he's on my side. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be great. Yeah. No, oh, well, may- no, maybe maybe it will they'll be the bad guys as well as Andy. Possibly. But well, then Andy can deal with them because he'll be really tough then. <laughs> no, I like it. I like, you know, I love these things where it, it, it spawns loads of different comment and debate and discussion around them. And uh, yeah, it's yes. good. I mean, the, the one other thing and with was... this, of course, you know, with all this stuff that we're talking about here, we're not we're not saying this is the right way of doing it. So no, of we're course. Really keen if people go, no, you don't realise you made that <laughs> terrible mistake. Yeah, do tell us. No, the, the other thing I was going to briefly mention, having read your background, running into that, where you talk about the impact of a crit and whether it would it would you know, stop that, I was just wondering whether you could delay the effect of a crit by. A, I did wonder like about this. that. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you, so you could maybe make a, a strength roll plus one success or a strength roll and the number of successes are the number of turns that the the critical of damage is, is delayed with a minimum of one, say. Because that then might give you that heroic last moment. If you've had a headshot that's going to kill you, you know, you manage to do two more turns of stuff and save everybody else before you die. Yeah, yeah but that, that's the really interesting thing is I thought I did. I was thinking along those lines. But then I did think, and I think with the experience of the the headshot, that then that's where it breaks. I feel it kind of breaks down the narrative that you know. Whereas <laughs> you had... could well have you know an internal injury yeah. that is going to kill you, but you power through it because of a talent. Um, but then if you know a headshot's a headshot, and then I started thinking if you have different rules for yeah. different crits, then that gets messy. Yeah, and that's what that's kind of the thinking that pulled me away from it being on a crit. But, you know, maybe we should give that a go as well. See yeah. how that works. Cool. Good stuff, Matt. Excellent. Brilliant. Okay, now, um, you've played, I believe, another game of Spectral Corsair, haven't you? We did, yeah. We had a game uh, last week, week before. Um, yeah, I thought I'd just give a, a very brief update on this one about what happened. But I think there's a couple of things in it that I'd want to pull out which are... Uh, one's a kind of rules thing which I just thought worth mentioning and the other is about player behaviour and I don't mean like you know sitting in the corner being grumpy or being disruptive but uh, you know so this is well no you you were being GM so you wouldn't have had any players doing that (laughs) you told me earlier it's me that that sort of player behaviour you told me I was the best player earlier is that because I... Oh, I did, yeah. <laughs> but that was a lie, David. You know it was a lie. Yes, I know that whenever <laughs> either of us say that the other person is the best about something, it's a lie, isn't it, Matthew? I... Yeah. I, I, <laughs> you walk, I guess that you, may be the case. You walked into that one, mate. <laughs> anyway, right, so... Uh, anyway, tell me about the Spectral Corsair. Spectral Corsair, episode seven, No Rest for the Wicked. Right, they got themselves to Mira, finally. Um... And for them, that meant they had a chance to rest, recuperate and take life a little bit easy for a while to get over the trials and tribulations of Zalos. But nothing goes easy for these guys. So their destination in in Mira was a planet, Trigon, which is orbiting Ant-Mira. So they had to make a portal jump. And, well, nothing goes right for them and they happen to fail 
the portal jump roll. So they had a misjump. Now, this is my first ever misjump as a referee. Um, I think mm-hmm. oh, as a player as well. And it was... It led, it led, it, it's led me to a point around kind of the rules. Actually, how bad is it if you fail a portal jump? So they rolled on the table um, on... I can't remember the page number in the book now. But uh, they rolled quite low. They rolled 16 or something, which basically meant that their ship was out of commission for one one day six days. They rolled the dice, mm-hmm. they rolled a one, so they had one day delay to their journey before they could then think about um, making the, the portal jump again. What yeah. I what I did do was make the engineer roll a bunch of technology rolls to repair the ship and eased up a load of their spare parts. So they ended up <laughs> using about a thousand burrs worth of spare parts to do it. Because otherwise it was all just... A did bit... they have to pay for a second portal jump as well? Well, I was being really kind to them. So I was saying that in Mira, internal portal-to-portal jumps for free. So, oh, um, whereas jumping out of the system wouldn't be free, but jumps, jumping in system was free because otherwise it just ends up, uh, in in my vision of Mira, it ends up putting a tax on internal trade and economy, and they didn't want to do, to do that. But the, uh, the, the, the portal jump, the failed portal jump table is on page 140 of the, the main book. And actually, most of most of the outcomes for failing a portal jump are just inconvenient, and they yeah. might damage the ship a little bit. It's only when you get right to the to the high end where it becomes really inconvenient. So you've got to roll fifty four or more um, for the ship to come back with a, a spirit haunting it or something, which is interesting. That's fine. Um, sixty two or above, and the ship disappears in the portal for you know, one d six months. And then comes out, and that's that's kind of getting into the realms that I quite like, because it really yeah. it really changes the price of fish of your particular scenario. If you're in a rush to get somewhere, suddenly being in portal space for three months before you reappear could be a real problem. Um, mm-hmm. But then there's the other one that has a similar effect, which is seventy-one to seventy-six, and you can only roll that obviously if you jump blind, because when you jump blind, which means making no calculations at all. Uh, and you misjump, you then add one to your tens dice. So it gives you a chance of yeah. doing this. Otherwise, if you if you don't jump blind, you can't. This can't happen to you. So this one is when the ship enters the portal, but it exits in a random system or through a random portal. So I kind of think that certainly in my campaign, it would be quite fun to have a kind of Star Trek Voyager moment where they fail the roll and they end up ten systems away, and they've got to now. You know, fight their way back again, and for me, as the GM in that situation, yes, it would create an enormous problem straight away. But the rules are so well designed that it's it's very easy to very quickly, randomly roll up a, a local system, a, a mission, a bad guy or a good guy for them to meet. It would be really easy for me to just finish the rest of that scenario on that day, and then plan for what they want to do next to get back. So I, it kind of yeah. feels to me that that jump. Failed job outcome table is a bit boring and it could be a lot more interesting with some of the potential outcomes. Hmm, that's interesting. Um, I, I, I wonder though whether... Uh, was there any palpable sense of relief when they found that it had only cost them, you know, some spare parts and a day's delay? There was. Were they aware yeah. of how wrong it could have been? I think... Because none of them actually run the game, 
and I don't yeah. suppose any of them have ever looked at what the potential outcomes are on the table. When Tony failed his handful of dice twice, and he had a lot of dice um, for the for the jump, the look on their faces was, oh my God, this is a disaster. But actually, the chances are it isn't a disaster. It's just a bit of a pain in the backside, and you're delayed by a few days, potentially. Um, so I think there's a difference between the, 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 you know, the real likely outcome, how severe it would be, and the player perception of how bad the outcome is likely to be. Mm. Certainly in my group, anyway. I haven't disabused them of that until, of course, they listen to this podcast. But um, <laughs> I might change the table before then. Because I, I just think it's there's probably more we can do with it and maybe a bigger risk of something of something a bit more severe going wrong. Don't know. I'll be interested in your and the listeners' views on whether you know whether I'm onto something there. But anyway, that came yeah, up. Yeah, I mean, you see, I, I don't think I'm qualified to comment because it just hasn't happened. No. no. Um, so uh, I'm kind of nervous about changing the table, but but at the same time, it has happened. And, you know, that could have been a lot of fun. And if it only happens, you know, if it, if the odds are that it very rarely happens, then given that all the failures they have to make before there's a you know, a portal jump mishap, then maybe there's just not a fun in the game unless you're playing on a weekly basis and um, managing to do a lot of portal jumps in that time. Yeah. And I think, obviously, if if you're misjumping, I mean, if you're jumping blind, sorry, uh, you know, which means you're probably being chased by someone or it's an emergency, then you lose three dice. But Tony is the pilot of our ship. He's got a lot of dice. Um, he's got the chapel on board. They will always pray in advance so that gives him two extra dice straight away he'll pray to the right uh icon so he gets an extra dice on the re-roll so they do all their preparation in exactly the way you would expect a sensible cautious pilot uh to do it so he's actually going to fail pretty rarely because in that sense he probably rolled about i'm not sure how many dice exactly but he's probably rolling 12 or 13 dice each time so he's probably rolling 25 or 26 dice. And not to get mm. one six out of that lot is going to be pretty unlikely. Unless you're Tony, because he seems to do that quite a lot. <laughs> um, but for normal people, yeah. uh, that might be... you know, The chances of them having a really bad misjump might be so vanishingly small that you might as well almost not bother. Don't know. Yeah, it's it's just it's making me think a little bit about you know how game is games are designed to tell a particular story. Yeah, and you know probabilities are such that um, maybe if you don't play enough, you don't get the story that the game is designed to tell. So maybe maybe you know when we're playing as relatively rarely as that group does, you're not you're getting together once a month. It's not always Coriolis. Am yeah. I right? Um, well, we pl- tend to play about every once every three weeks on average, Coriolis. Yeah. Um, if we can and, manage you know, it. And, yeah. and our group, uh, we only get together to to actually play Coriolis. Well, surprisingly, we've done it more often than we should have done this year. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, it might only be once every six months. So maybe there is an argument for sometimes tweaking the tables to to make Coriolis do more Coriolis-type stuff yeah. in-game. I guess on the other hand, though, if if you made it too too, if you made the chances too great that being fired around somewhere totally random in the third horizon would happen too often, then that would get a bit tiresome after a while. 
Yeah. <laughs> You're just about, they're making their last jump to Odicon to find the guy they're looking for. They spent 15 scenarios getting there and then, boom, they end up in Dabaran. <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, there have been problems on their mission already, haven't there? So, so maybe actually the table was being kind just as fair as it should have been yeah, in only yeah. delaying them for an extra day yes i think there is definitely a ill-fated kind of feel to their to their to their to their uh their mission even though no one's died yet but time right. for another firefly quote go things on. don't go smooth <laughs> no exactly all right let me just uh, like uh, tell you what happened on this this particular game so they got themselves back to uh Carfi, which is the moon of trigon where samar's hamam and her insula, her apartment uh, block, was. And that's where they were staying. And when they arrived, they were greeted like old friends. And Samar gave them full use of one of her apartments and handed over 20,000 burr that Jubal had sent them to help them on their way. But 8-Bit was a bit suspicious about that. And he made a joke about it. But Samar obviously looked a bit uncomfortable. So when they found out a little while later that she'd actually held on to 25,000 burr that... Jubal had sent, they were obviously a bit disappointed and upset. Prior to that, they'd had a healer, a shaman, uh, come round to take a look at Carter's leg. And his leg was lignifying. It was turning into wood as a result of the wound he received on board the throne of Shahada when he was rescuing Alina from the trial of the icons. Mm. And this guy, called Orbari, looked very shocked and very, very uh, horrified at what was happening and advised that Carter should have his leg amputated at the earliest opportunity to save his life. So they obviously needed all this money. But it turned out, Samar broke down when they challenged her over this money. And it turned out that she's in enormous debt. She owes some gambling debts to a local uh, a local gang, um, a local branch of the Miran gang called the Okradama. And she'd also owed them protection money that she hadn't been able to pay. And to enforce this, they'd taken her niece as surety for Samar to pay the debts. And she'd given them 25,000 burr, which was the player's money, um, in the hope that that would get her niece released. It wasn't the full amount, but that didn't happen. So she was in a real state. So these, uh, this gangster called Irania had their money, had Samar's niece, and the players had a very long debate over what they should do about it. Um, ultimately... Um, Osgar and Hanbal, who were the two humanites of the group, decided to go and recce uh, the shrine, the location where Irania had her, her base of operations. And it, they got a sense of its defences. It was quite well defended. And they realised that a frontal assault on the shrine to try and rescue the girl was going to be, at, well, at the very least, costly uh, and very dangerous. And this begins to play into the other thing I just wanted to pull out about player behaviour. So we're now seeing, I'm now seeing in my group, the players being really, really reticent to get involved in a gunfight because of how dangerous it is. And they well, will... You know lo- what happens in a gunfight, Dave? People get, get hurt, don't they? Yeah. <laughs> so they were really, really uh, reluctant to try and assault this base. So they tried to find another way of, of managing this. And they, they found out that Orbari, this healer, was a member of um, a temple called the Temple of the Weeping Mother, which was closely connected to this shrine where Irania was working. So they spoke to him and tried to convince him 
that Irania was a criminal. Now, unfortunately, this didn't go down very well. They screwed up their manipulation roles. Um, Ubari immediately resented their accusation that Irania was a criminal. Uh, he resented the implication that he consorted with criminals, and he thought um, that their offer of one of the icon-blessed cats, one of the kittens that they've still got on board the ship, of which they've got six left, um, he thought their offer of that as a gift to him was not only a complete con, it was blasphemous. So he got really un- angry. Now, Upar is a first come, and Hanbal hates first come, and so with the um, judicious use of a darkness point, I activated Tony's problem and Tony, Tony got very angry and started shouting uh, at this guy with uh, Osgar who also has a problem where he 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 hates people who are too preachy um, because of his background having come from Zalos B in the war so Tony uh, Hanbal and Ulbari were having a sanging match which ended up being a, a fight so Tony punched him um, punched a priest you know in their car park or in their in their front in their front porch in front of you know members of the public not not a really clever idea dean tried to stop this happening but was getting more and more wound up by obari's pronouncements so when hanbell managed to control himself osgar lost it and punched him in the side of the head and knocked him out so anyway they had this they had this unconscious priest on their hands um a little while later and some smelling salts later um a very wary obari came round in their apartment in samar's insula and whilst he was, at the very least, metaphorically, if not literally, um, a captive audience, Valdez tried again to explain the problem and made some brilliant manipulation roles. So they were able to get him on their side to try and broker a deal. And in the end, he managed to broker the deal for them. They got their money back. They got the daughter, the, the niece released, and uh, an undertaking that the gang wouldn't... Uh, wouldn't uh, cause any more trouble for Samar and her Hamam. And with all that, they were able to get their cybernetic legs replaced, they were able to get um, some peace and quiet and a couple of weeks rest at the Hamam before they now travel on to the Zib system, which is the next system uh, in their in their travel. But it was I was really pleased that their die rolls went well, so they were able to resolve the, the issue without having to actually end up fighting people and using you know lots of violence even though there was a bit of fisticuffs going on uh they were never going to kill him in doing that they weren't trying to kill him um the other the other upshot was that they agreed to hand over all of the kittens so when they managed to get (laughs) when they managed to get orbari up to the ship to prove to him that they weren't lying about these kittens the manipulation role that they made was so good that i had orbari kind of fall to his knees in religious uh, awe and um dumbstruck and he was convinced from that point on. And yeah, but he then took the kittens for his temple. So it worked really well, and it and it pulled out a couple of really interesting things for me around the portal jumping and the misjumping, and the the player behaviour. I think um, it's going to be interesting when they do start pulling their guns out again, to see under what circumstances they feel that's necessary, considering how bad yeah. the, the how bad the consequences can be. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out. Um, you know, I, I think it's a good thing, uh, yes. generally, yeah, <laughs> that me too. people don't use violence. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, and interestingly, I've been reading um, for an upcoming game with my weekly group, uh, Unknown Armies. And the yeah. combat section of Unknown Armies starts off with a section on ways to get out of fighting. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, uh, I, well I think it's... I think the big mistake that we made in the game where Yafet wasn't killed was yeah. one, we were all thirsting to fire our guns a bit because we hadn't fired our guns in the whole game. I hadn't even thrown a punch in the whole game, which as, yes. a, as a player was a bit understandable, but a bit foolish, I guess. Uh, but there would have been potentially other ways of resolving that bounty hunter license rather than just running through the door and opening fire. We should have at least given no. the guy a chance to come quietly, which we didn't. And no, if it hadn't have been good for the dance, if it hadn't been for the dancer's talent, I would have paid for it very dearly. So a good lesson, <laughs> a good lesson for Yafet in you know, let's talk first rather than just yes. get shot. Let's see if we can. <laughs> Now I noticed right. we're running short of time. Yep. Um, I and in fact, I noticed we're running. We're, we've done an hour. Already. We have. We um, have. So this is long, longer than we were, thought it was going to be. But again, we don't. We don't, <laughs> we don't shut up. We're a bit too loquacious, aren't we? But I and think I've got to start cooking tea quite soon. <laughs> so, <laughs> so um, in order to make sure that you, uh, you don't upset Mrs. Tyler Jones, um, we've got a few things coming up next. Uh, just to mention before we sign off, haven't we, Matthew? Yes. So, first of all, of course, um, in December, uh, Dragon Meat on the 2nd of December in London is taking place. And the Coriolis effect is part of the podcast zone. So we will be there. We've also both of us signed up to run games uh, that uh, of Coriolis that, uh, we, uh, that, uh, that people can sign up to to play i'm not convinced actually that we're going to have enough time to do all of that so we might need to review yeah how we spend all our time but we're definitely going to be at dragon meet if you're in london on the 2nd of december come and see us come and say hello it'd be brilliant to meet everybody uh or as many who can make it that would be great uh the other bit of news we have uh yeah under the, the most he- exciting bit of news. really exciting bit of news coming up um, that falls under the heading of coming next uh for the next podcast which will probably be early november now because both matthew and i have got some holidays to take but we will have by then had the great honor and opportunity to interview nils carleen and costa costulas of free league over in stockholm and we will be um replaying some of that on the podcast next time around can't say how much we're looking forward to it we're really delighted that they're able to to see us and we are really looking forward to chatting to them and having a couple of beers. Um, just can't wait. That's going to be fabulous. It's very exciting. Really exciting news. So, um, yeah, I think uh, on on that bombshell, as they used to say on Top Gear, <laughs> let's, uh, let's say our goodbyes and see everybody. Well, I guess there is a chance we might drop an episode of Simba Room while we're gone. But otherwise, we'll see you all in November. So it's uh, goodbye from David and it's goodbye from me. And may the icons bless your adventures. been listening to The Coriolis Effect, presented by Fiction Suit with the RPG Gods, with music by Stars on a Black Sea, used with permission of Free League Publishing. Imagery from NASA and the Hubble Space Telescope, brought to you by Wikimedia Commons. Typeface 
is code by Fontfabric.